Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Dear Lady Melgand, the bad times are over, and for good, I hope. Madame de Prowlin, insofar as her nature permits, is being very good to me. As soon as my students are married, I shall live in my own house. Chez moi! You can't imagine how much those words mean to someone who has never had a house. Mademoiselle de Luzy. Auguste, you startled me. You could have knocked. I'm sorry to inform you, mademoiselle, but Madame and Monsieur Prolon have instructed me to tell you. You must leave the premises immediately. Pardon? If you have no place readily available to stay, the Prolons will pay for one room in a hotel for up to three days until you find a permanent place to live. I don't believe you. You must be teasing me. The Marshal Sebastiani has defamatory information concerning you and the Duc de Prelon. Rumors have ransacked the city about your relationship. I recommend you leave at once to prevent further damage to your reputation. I'll see you in the foyer. But what about the children? Who will care for them? The matters of the Prelon children are no longer a concern to you. You're tearing me away from them just like that? They're practically family. Did I make myself clear? I'll start packing. Right away. In June of 1847, six years had passed since Henriette de Porte de Luzy became the Pralun's governess. During that time, the already shaky marriage between temperamental Fanny and her docile husband, Theo, crumbled. The only connections between them were the long hallways of their various homes. That year, Fanny was particularly volatile. She demanded Teo fire Henriette, but after Henriette had moved out, Teo and the children continued to visit her. Teo promised Henriette and the children that, quote, things would get better soon. But on the early morning of August 18, 1847, things got much worse when Fanny was found in her bedroom, brutally murdered. This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our final episode on the murder of Fanny de Choiselle Prelan. 
At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. For her entire marriage, Fanny wanted one thing, the complete devotion of her husband, Teo. They had fallen in love as teenagers, married quickly, and captured the awe and admiration of French society. Fanny wanted that state of bliss to last forever. When the Pralun's children were born, however, Teo lavished attention on them and grew distant from his wife. Fanny felt threatened and became possessive of him. Unfortunately, this backfired as the more desperate she was, the more Teo pushed her away. Henriette de Porte de Luzy was hired as governess in 1841, and soon she and Teo were close, spending long hours together with the children and going out with them when Fanny was away. Rumors of an affair flew around Paris, and eventually, in a letter written in June of 1847, Fanny demanded that Teo fire Henriette. From this point forward, I intend to take care of my unwed daughters myself. My father is prepared to offer Mademoiselle de Luzy a life pension which will assure her a good position in England, far away from here. Theo, the Duke of Choiseul-Prolon, was losing his governess, the woman who had become a dear friend to him, if not more. Fanny's letter to Theo was soon followed up with a message from her father. Monsieur le Duc. You have subjected my daughter to the cruelest and most disgusting of humiliations for more than five years now. In order to put an end to this scandal, I will pay the woman her pension, as long as she leaves immediately. Teo realized he had to comply. Henriette was fired on June 15, 1847. But only two days later, before the governess had settled anywhere, the children contracted scarlet fever. Fanny felt incapable of caring for sick children on her own, so the Praluns asked Henriette to stay on until the children were well again. To avoid the governess, Fanny confined herself to her room for an entire month. Once the children were healthy again, on July 17th, Henriette left the Praluns' Paris home and rented a room at a boarding house. But the Pralun children had no relationship with their mother, and they desperately missed Henriette. On several occasions, Teo brought the children to visit her, and seeing how much the children loved her, he resented Fanny even more. He could no longer hide his anger. Fanny noticed a change in him. He is no longer the same man. He is suspicious, exhausted, and irritable. He has no real friends. I am afraid of the future and the threats he has made. But I have faith. I know God will support me. Lord God, how is this all to end? And as Fanny tried to soothe her worries alone at home, Teo and the children continued their trips to see Henriette. Their final visit occurred on the night of August 17th. We'll do our best to help you now, Henriette. I promise you. Happy days are ahead, okay? I know. 
It feels so hard to believe. I miss the children terribly. You all have been the happiness of my life. Please, try and be patient. Maybe find another position. It would be a healthy distraction. But that's the very thing. I can't yet, for Fanny hasn't provided me with a letter of recommendation. She hasn't written you a letter yet? It's been a month. She promised she would, but so far I have nothing. With my name sullied in the papers, there's nothing I can do. Teo soon gathered the children and returned home. Meanwhile, Fanny was in her bedclothes by 10 p.m. as usual. She wasn't terribly hungry, so she asked for a simple supper of bread and salt and half a bottle of orjat, a drink made of barley and almond water that was popular at the time. Her servant, Euphemy, who had known Fanny since she was a child, delivered food, a napkin, and a pearl-handled bread knife to the bedroom. She set the tray beside Fanny, who was reading on a chaise near the fireplace. How I used to love supper like this. It brings back a happy memory or two. So glad I can help you relax, madam. Could you have a porter schedule a pedicure for 7 a.m.? Of course. I would like to be awakened by 6. Coffee at 7, please. Certainly, madam. Good night. Good night, darling. Euphemie lit a lamp at the edge of Fanny's bed. She closed and locked the shutters and locked both doors to the room, one that immediately led to the main salon of the house and one that led to the bathroom, and then through the bathroom to the hallway to Teo's rooms and to outside. She did not bolt the doors, however. Fanny always hoped her husband would come and see her at night. At about 4.15 in the morning, the servants heard a single ring of Fanny's bell. Half asleep and thinking it was a mistake, they waited a few moments, but then heard strange, nearly inhuman screams. This particular house of theirs was in the middle of bustling Paris, so it was not uncommon to hear an occasional disturbance in the middle of the night. At the Pralon home, Fanny's bell rung a second time, now more violently. The servants pulled themselves from bed and rushed to Fanny's bedroom. They unhooked the key from the wall and were trying to unlock her door as they heard sounds of a struggle. They unlocked the door but discovered it had also been bolted from the inside, despite the fact that Euphemie hadn't bolted it when she left. Madam, are you all right in there? Auguste, try the windows. The valet Auguste ran outside to the windows of Fanny's first floor bedroom, but they were just as Euphemie had left them. Shutters closed and locked. He ran inside and around to the door that connected Fanny and Teo's quarters and found it ajar. The noises of the struggle had ceased. Fanny's room was in complete darkness, yet in the air was the metallic, raw smell of blood and carnage. Auguste ran out of the room to fetch a sword, a heavy stick, and a lamp just in case the murderer was still present. He sent the porter, Monsieur Briffard, to fetch a doctor and police. Auguste led the team of servants back into the room and, holding a lamp high, discovered a horrifying scene. The bed was a mess of blood. Dark red palm prints streaked across the wall, as if a wounded person had tried to cross the room but couldn't stand without support. Furniture was overturned, and finally, crumpled in a pool of thick blood in front of the fireplace, was the lady of the house. 
Fanny sat on the floor with her head rested on a sofa cushion. Her eyes were open, but her face was so drenched in blood that she was barely recognizable. One servant ran outside and across the garden to get more help and noticed a column of smoke rising from the chimney of the Duke's bedroom. It was still before 5 a.m., however, and Teo was rarely awake at this time, much less building a fire. The servants gathered in the grand salon, distraught. Euphemy sat on the steps and wept. <laughs> Auguste, what shall we do? There's one last bit of hope. I will go check if she is breathing. There could still be time to save her. And that is when Teo appeared. What is going on? What has happened? I'm afraid Madame may have suffered a mishap. The servants looked at him curiously and glanced at each other. For to open the door of the salon where they all stood, he would have had to cross the full length of Fanny's bedroom, dart around the overturned furniture, and step over his wife's crumpled blood-soaked body. He had passed directly by the brutal scene, and yet he feigned ignorance. The Duke's behavior was already incredibly suspicious. We'll investigate the murder further after this. Now, back to the story. Just before dawn on Wednesday, August 18, 1847, Fanny, the Duchess de Soiselle Pralonne, was found lying in front of her fireplace, brutalized and nearly dead. Her husband, Theo, the Duke de Soiselle Pralonne, had arrived on the scene and was acting rather strange. Theo led his servants back into Fanny's room where they opened the shutters. In the first signs of daylight, the scene was more gruesome than they could have imagined. Blood was everywhere, in pools around the room. Clearly, Fanny had struggled with her attacker. Her face was barely recognizable from the blood that ran down it. But there was hope. The faint, jagged sound of raspy breath came from her lips. She's still breathing. Fanny groaned lightly. Euphemie ran to her and gathered her in her arms. Hurry, get vinegar and water. We'll wash the wounds. My wife is still alive? Oh, poor woman. What a terrible misfortune. What will happen to us all now? Oh! Teo wailed and beat his fists on the wall, but he didn't try to help. When the doctors arrived, he threw himself on the bed and cried out, oh, Horrors! Horrors! Oh. Who is going to tell the poor children that they no longer have a mother? Oh, and Horace, who will tell her father? Oh. It was a loud display of grief for such a reserved man, but no one in such circumstances is expected to act normally. Still, the servants were uneasy at his behavior. Still in denial about what had happened, Euphemie asked the doctors if there was a way to mend the deep cuts on Fanny's throat the multiple stab wounds on her body, or the large bruise forming on the side of her head. The doctors announced that it was too late to save her. With that, Teo retreated to his bedroom silently, locking himself in. He started another fire in his fireplace. Within the hour, the police arrived, led by investigator Pierre Allard, head of the Surette Nationale, or French National Police. Upon entering Fanny's bedroom, Alar immediately remarked to his colleagues, This is not the work of a professional. It is the work of a gentleman. 
By 7 a.m., a man named Poe arrived for Fanny's pedicure. He was turned away from the house, but not before he heard whispers of homicide. At 8 o'clock, another man arrived to interview for a position within the household. He was turned away and caught a glimpse of worried faces and a horde of detectives. By 9 o'clock, the word was out on the streets of Paris. Fanny, the Duchess of Pralon, had been murdered. A crowd was gathering at the gates of her home at 55 Rue de Faubourg Saint-Honoré. Meanwhile, across town at the boarding house, Henriette was in a sunny mood. She had plans that afternoon to see two of the Pralon daughters, Berta and Louise. However, by mid-morning, she was told that someone was downstairs asking to see her. Henriette was surprised. Why would the girls arrive early? When she reached the parlor, she saw that her visitors weren't the Pralon girls, but two friends from the neighborhood, Madame and Monsieur Remy. They had grave looks on their faces, and they told her the news. Henriette, Fanny was found murdered in her bedroom this morning. Oh, God, it can't be true. Oh, I hope that poor man didn't have an argument with her. The Remys thought her reaction was strange, but didn't say anything. They then revealed one detail that had already slipped out into the streets. Fanny's body had more than 30 knife wounds. Upon hearing this, Henriette flung herself in front of an engraving of the Last Supper. Oh, thank God. Oh, thank you, God. There cannot have been a quarrel between them. If she received that many wounds, there must have been several murderers. Later that day, she wrote a letter to Louise, the oldest Pralon daughter. My beloved Louise, you can understand my despair. You can understand why I did not fly to you when I learned of the appalling tragedy that has struck you. Courage, poor children. When you call me, I shall come and mingle my tears with yours. As she finished the letter, there was a knock on the door. The police were there to arrest her. She left willingly, calmly. As they led her out, she said that she'd been expecting justice to summon her for some time. Henriette was placed in a holding cell in solitary confinement. The police did not want her sharing her story to anyone. There were already accusations of corruption in the royal court, not to mention the rumors about Henriette and Theo. They were protecting French nobility as much as they were protecting her. Meanwhile, chaos continued at the Pralon home. The children were rushed to stay with a family friend, and 19-year-old Louise was sent alone to Switzerland to tell her grandfather of Fanny's death. At noon, Theo was still locked in his room, stoking a fire. It was early afternoon when Fanny's uncle arrived. Upon seeing his niece's body, he stumbled backward. Feeling faint, he asked for a glass of water. Auguste ran to the Duke's bedroom to fetch the nearest carafe. What is it? I'm sorry, sir. I've only come to borrow your carafe. Uh, General Tiber Sebastiani is here and- This water's no good. That's fine. May I borrow the carafe? He is ill and needs a drink. Take it. I'm miserable. Auguste crossed the room to fetch the carafe and noticed scraps of clothing and paper smoldering in the fireplace. Then, glancing at the carafe, he noticed that the water in the container was slightly cloudy. Auguste brought the carafe to Fanny's room. An empty carafe. I thought you were bringing water. I understand. Monsieur Sebastiani, I will fetch water for you in a moment. Can't you see this man needs assistance? 
Of course, but I... Where were you early this morning, anyway? Perhaps you should return to your room. My men might want to ask you a few questions. Auguste handed Alar the carafe, which still contained a small bit of the cloudy water. Rather than question me, you should look to Monsieur Le Duc. Unless someone watches him, he will destroy the evidence of his crime, and perhaps even take his own life. The investigators stood open-mouthed as the valet left the room, but his comment stood out in their minds. Later, when they tested the water in the carafe, they discovered that the cloudiness was caused by traces of blood. But blood was everywhere. It trailed and pooled in multiple places, providing evidence of a long struggle. Detectives theorized that the first wound was cut in the bed while Fanny was sleeping. The heaviest spots of blood were up near the pillow, revealing that the cut probably happened at her throat. But the fight didn't end there. Bloody handprints across the walls showed that Fanny stood up and fought back, which was likely when she was able to ring the service bell and scream. But then something stopped her from screaming, probably additional cuts along the throat. An examination of Fanny's body showed three unsteady cuts at her throat, the last which finally severed her vocal cords and an artery. Police noted that the fact that the cuts were unsteady was evidence of a weak force or a nervous hand. Fanny also had dozens of stab wounds in her body and a bruise on her face, likely from a blunt object. This blow to her head was probably the strike that killed her. However, the most important detail was one that the servants of the house told police. They revealed that when they entered the room, the shutters were still locked and one of the doors was bolted from the inside. And the door leading to Teo's hallway was ajar. With these discoveries and Auguste's warning, Alar led himself to Teo's room in the afternoon on the same day of the murder. Burning a fire, I see. Cold? I can't get warm at all. It must be the distress. Perhaps it's the wet spots on your clothes. I had to take care of some stains. What kind of stains? Surely you haven't eaten anything. I don't know how you could. Blood. There were spots of blood. It must have gotten on me when I held her, in my grief. And this? This is quite a fire you're building. Looks like there are clothes in there. Auguste put out a neckerchief for me earlier. It was frayed. I don't want to wear old neckerchiefs. Ever the gentleman. Amid all the chaos, you still want to look good. Habit, I suppose. When did you know that something was amiss this morning? About 4.30 a.m. I heard my wife yell, thief. I was sleeping. Martin, doctor, come in. Monsieur Pralon, this is my colleague, Martin, and this is Dr. Bernard. The doctor would like to examine you. Would you remove your clothing, monsieur? Alar later said that Teo submitted to the examination of the doctor like a man admitting his guilt. Upon examination, they found that Teo's body was covered in bites and scratches. Some were so fresh that they still seeped blood. Despite the wounds that were clearly teeth marks, he claimed that he had not been bitten. He said that he had bruised and scratched himself simply through his daily habits. Numerous suspicious clues were found in Teo's room. His neckerchief, which he had said was in terrible condition and thus had to burn, was in fine condition at the edge of the fireplace. Not so pristine were the singed remains of Teo's other clothes. They were found to be soaked in blood. Other bloodstained clothes were found at the foot of a basement entrance directly under Teo's window. 
When the police finally moved Fanny's body, they found Teo's loaded pistol underneath her. When asked how it got there, he said that he'd brought it there when he heard her cry thief, but that still didn't explain how she ended up collapsed on top of it. Nor could he explain why fragments of his wife's skin and hair had adhered to the blunt handle of the pistol. Officials seem to discover a new piece of evidence every moment. The four-poster bed on which Fanny slept held a heavy, almost concrete-like canopy. Each of the four posts had been loosened. With a single night of fitful sleep, the heavy canopy could have come crashing down onto Fanny. They discovered that the bolt on the door between Teo and Fanny's chambers had been removed completely. The lock was still operable, but the bolt was completely gone. All signs were pointing to Teo as the killer, and by the afternoon of Wednesday, August 18th, the crowd had grown to a mob outside the Pralun's door. Everyone in the city wanted the scoop. Word of the crime scene had spread among the crowd, who likely heard details from servants who wished to see Teo prosecuted for what he'd done. The crowds began to wonder why Teo hadn't been arrested. It was more evidence that the House of Orléans and all their royal friends could get away with anything. By 3 p.m. on August 18th, the same day of the murder, police decided that they would confine the Duke to his room and keep him on constant watch. The hours passed as investigators questioned Teo, who said very little. Police couldn't do much other than manage the witnesses. The law stated that if a member of the Court of Peers was accused of a crime, the Court of Peers would take the lead in the investigation, not the standard police and the peers were called to take over the case. There was one small snag. The peers were on a summer recess, and a king's order was required to reconvene them. Yet the king was on vacation in Normandy. The entire investigation would have to wait at least two days. King Philippe, who was a personal friend of Teo's, received the tragic news late in the day on August 18th. Upon hearing of the crime, the king's reply was simply... What a terrible mess. He reluctantly called the peers to reconvene in Paris. As the peers gathered, Teo sat in a chair staring at the fire. Sometimes he would break his silence and beg to be left alone. Sometimes he would lash out against the police and tell them how miserable he was at his wife's death. Can I get a moment alone to grieve? Unfortunately, that's against my orders, monsieur. I have to use the toilet. Can I do that at least? Go ahead. I can't even do this alone? Orders. (sighs) But decency made the guard look away for just a moment. And the Duke pulled a vial of arsenic from the folds of his clothing. In one swift motion, less than a few seconds, Teo threw his head back and down the entire vial before the guard could notice. You finished? (sighs) I believe I am. By the end of the day on Thursday, one day after Fanny's murder... Teo began to retch. The poison was doing its work. The doctors, however, diagnosed it as a gastric disorder, prescribing red Bordeaux wine and ices. Early the next morning, Alar updated his report. The Duke had a very bad night. He suffers greatly and seems to be devoured by anxiety. He asked for bouillon, but the servants of the house are so repelled by him that no one wants to help. Out in the street, everyone is accusing him and they suspect the governess to be his accomplice. The Duke's health was spiraling quickly. 
It wasn't until the evening of Friday, August 20th, that the Court of Peers reconvened. Alar handed over the evidence that he and his team had gathered. Meanwhile, the mobs outside felt that they were in a race to acquire justice. Word had spread that the Duke was ill, and they feared he would die before he was punished for the crime they were sure he committed. Trying to protect their reputations, the peers, who had yet to fully convene, blamed the police for botching the investigation, and the police blamed the peerage for not being present when they should have been. Amid all the finger-pointing, Teo grew sicker by the minute. He asked to take a bath, and a tub was brought to his room. He fainted twice in the bath and became violently ill. He had to be carried back to his bed. Men searched his room for the knife or sword with which Fanny was stabbed. Teo watched them, still begging for a moment alone. The Duke was carried to another room, and upon moving him, Auguste found the vial from which the arsenic came. A few grains remained in the container, and Auguste turned the item over to the officials. Upon learning of the arsenic, doctors went full force into saving Teo's life. They prescribed, quote, sweet and diuretic drinks, colonic washings of marshmallow and opium, camphorated almond oil, and hot poultices on the stomach, end quote. The chief physician of the Court of Peers demanded even more drastic measures, calling for, quote, mustard plasters on all extremities, irrigations of hot milk, and leeches on the anus. Meanwhile, Henriette was occasionally questioned in prison, but was mostly left alone in a cold, dark room. She was allowed to take nightly walks, but the courtyard in which she strolled was in plain view from the apartments above. The people of Paris screamed and yelled at her, accusing her, insulting her. The only person in the entire city that showed her kindness was one member of the police named Victor Cousin. Time to take a walk. I already took one today. You don't want to get out of the cell? I do. I just didn't expect to be able to. I don't envy your position, mademoiselle. I don't believe anyone does. I doubt there are many people who are willing to listen to your side of the story. I think you may have earned a small break. And while Henriette walked alone in a circle around the prison yard, the crowds kept protesting outside the Duke's home. He would feel better, then the pains and sweats would kick in again. Eager to get the case moving forward, officials carried him out of his home before dawn on Saturday morning, transporting him by carriage to Luxembourg Palace, where he would await trial. But the travel was too much for him. On August 24, 1847, six days after the murder, the Duke of Pralon finally gave in to the arsenic and died. He was examined by three doctors after his death. Nobody, not even his children, were allowed to attend his funeral. He was also buried in an unmarked grave so as to prevent vandals from ruining it. After Teo died, the public pressed for the courts to file charges and solve the murder, but the court of peers hesitated. With an angry mob of the French lower class outside, the court of peers likely believed that to protect the court's reputation from the ire of the public, they had to make it look like the duke was innocent and they never pressed charges. This incensed the already unhappy lower class. Most of the middle and working classes believed that the Duke was literally getting away with murder, and that this failure to press charges against a man who was already dead provided more proof of royal favor and corruption. 
The lower class knew that if one of them became a suspect in a similar case, they would have been guillotined without hesitation. Multiple sources state that the discontentment following the Pralun case, along with other circumstances, led directly to the Revolution of 1848. The 1848 revolution was specifically a backlash against King Louis-Philippe, who was nicknamed the bourgeois monarch because during his rule, the state was controlled mostly by educated elites. The middle and working classes were heavily marginalized, and only landowners, the top 1% of the nation, were allowed to vote. Thus, the Prolon murder was one of many sparks that ignited the flames of revolution, All evidence pointed to Teo as the murderer, and yet the court refused to press charges. But there were still some unanswered questions. It appeared as though the Duke had killed his wife, but he may not have done it alone. At the time of Teo's death, Henriette still waited behind bars, and the police were going to make her talk. We'll learn what happens with Henriette after this. And now back to the story. By September 14, 1847, the mob in front of the Prolon Paris home had finally dispersed. Teo had committed suicide, and the Prolon children were trying to settle elsewhere after the terrible tragedy that struck their family. But Henriette de Luzy still waited in solitary confinement. Her only real conversations were interrogations. For weeks, the police questioned her, but Henriette remained loyal to Teo insisting that Teo could not have been the murderer. Even when police presented solid evidence like the bloody clothes in the fireplace and the pistol with Fanny's hair and skin on it, Henriette persistently protected his reputation. Yet police suspected this loyalty was driven by sinister motivations. They had discovered multiple letters in which Henriette complained to Teo about Fanny and expressed her desire to be happy with him and the children. One particularly damning note from the governess to Teo lent some weight to the rumors created by their relationship. My friend, oh, more than my friend, all night I asked God in the fullness of my gratitude to you and my feeling for you to show me the way to sacrifice myself for your happiness. If I have been the involuntary instrument of trouble to the children, I owe it to them as a mother to put their happiness above every consideration. Never, never will I become accustomed to the life that I now lead. It is a death by pinpricks. How sweet it would be to die for all of you. She had gone so far as to call herself the Prolon children's mother, and her words were certainly more than one would use with a casual friend. She had become emotionally entwined with Teo, if not physically entwined as well. Yet, as three weeks passed and the evidence became more damning against her, Henriette continued to protect the Duke. Of course, no one had told her that Teo was dead and buried. You seem to be saying that the act of murder, if Monsieur Prallon did commit it, was defensible. His children were being menaced by her. His love for his children were his ruin. He was the best, the sweetest, and the most patient of men. And he was made to endure what no other human being, perhaps, could have endured. Ask anyone who knew that deplorable household. No one can know how he was harassed and tortured, and I who could tell you would not be believed. You understand that some believe that the act was premeditated. An act of madness or passion it may have been, but as for premeditation, 
Never. Never. I will never believe that. After three weeks of getting nothing from Henriette, Victor Cousin decided it was time to tell her that Teo had died. Perhaps her loyalty would falter if she knew he was gone. I have to tell you something, mademoiselle. The Duke of Prolon feared the judgment of his peers and the just punishment that would have followed. He escaped both by committing suicide. Oh, no. No! He can't be dead! I I can't... dead? He died from arsenic poisoning a few weeks ago. It is now up to you to explain all that happened. (laughs) Poor man! But if he had the poison, he must have... He never spoke to me of this. I would have stopped him. I would have given my life for him or his children. Why did he say nothing to me? You mean to say you knew nothing of this crime? Not at all. The thought of this crime, the the suggestion of murder, it would have filled me with horror. But your letters to the Duke, they talk of happy times in the future. That wasn't about the aftermath of Fanny's murder? In my letters, I also talk about bouncing Louise's babies on my knee. How could I do that if I planned to kill her mother? My heart was bitter towards Madame Prowlon, but I never would have harmed a hair on her head. I would have saved her from harm at the risk of my own life. Oh, why am I not dead myself? (laughs) Henriette soon went back to her cell in tears. For days, she sat alone and forlorn until a letter arrived from her former charge, Nina, now Lady Melgund. It was an expression of faith in Henriette and a plea to the police to set her free. Weeks later, the police interrogated her again, and this time she changed her tune about the Duke. He was so lazy that I don't think he read my letters at all. I knew that he was a weak man, but I always supposed he was a master of himself and a man of sound judgment. If I had thought he would raise a finger to her, I wouldn't have written him. But how could I know? Henriette was finally given her freedom on November 17, 1847, three months after the murder. Her once delicate complexion had dulled, the lines of her face had deepened. She now looked much older than her 34 years of age. She left prison, but France gave her little freedom. She was watched, whispered about, and giggled at. An official statement by the king's prosecutor called her dominating and enterprising, a woman who took advantage of a kind family. Yet as the fires of revolution were fanned by other injustices, the story of the Prolun murders grew stale. People forgot Henriette's name, and she left for England, then continued on to the United States. She was mostly forgotten by the people involved in the investigation for a year and a half, until the spring of 1850, when Victor Cousin, a lead investigator of the Prolon murder, who was sympathetic to Henriette's plight, received a letter. Monsieur, do you remember the unhappy woman whom the most horrible of catastrophes brought before you as an accused person? I was saved from total despair by a kindly glance and a word from you. In the horrors of prison, in the long loneliness of exile, I have never ceased blessing you, even in my gratitude. I have a new favor to solicit. Henriette shared with Inspector Cousin that she was to be married to a celebrated Protestant minister named Henry Field. She heard him preaching and threw herself at his feet, 
begging him to teach her what he knew about forgiveness and benevolence. She became friends with his family, and soon he asked her to marry him. Henriette said that while Henry knew her entire story and trusted her, many people did not know her that well. She wanted Cousin to endorse her character and restate her innocence. He generously did so, and soon Henriette had married one of the richest pastors in all of New England. Henriette finally had so much of what she wanted. Though she didn't have children of her own, she had a home that was filled with endless friends of impressive walks of life. She regularly held salons and was admired by her friends. It was funny. In France, Henriette's history made her a pariah. In New York, it made her interesting. Henriette made two visits to France after moving to the States. One was to speak with the Pralon family lawyers. According to Teo's will, she was to receive an annuity for every year of her life until her death. She decided instead to take a lump sum, thus cutting off her contact with the Praluns altogether. She never again spoke to the Pralun children. Henriette passed away in 1875. The Evening Post declared that, for 20 years, Mrs. Field has been one of the most distinguished women in New York. The New York Tribune said that her death brought, quote, a deep sense of personal loss in the intellectual and social life of the city. Yet life for the Pralons didn't tie up quite as neatly. The children lived relatively quiet lives, but a popular rumor sprung up in France that the Duke had never actually died. The rumor said that Theo had been smuggled out of France by the court of peers, and he lived in England for a while. Researcher Eddie Cole claimed that Theo then left England and traveled to Nicaragua, where he fathered two sons named George and Benjamin and three daughters, Margarita, Eva, and Gertrude. According to this theory, the Duke died in 1882 and was buried in Nicaragua. Cole published this information in the year 2000, and apparently the Choiseul Prolong descendants in France wanted to meet the supposed Nicaraguan relatives. It's believed that this meeting occurred in 2014, though neither family has confirmed the relation. Well, very little information on the results of this meeting exist. However, there is still a very active group of Praluns online who claim to be descendants of a Teo Pralun who lived in Nicaragua. They are interested in DNA testing and could be pursuing this as we speak. This theory is technically possible, since only a small group of people claimed to see the Duke's body after he died. Only three doctors had declared him dead, and each of them could have been paid a sizable sum of money from Teo's accounts to lie. Well, this theory would also explain why Teo's children were not allowed to attend his funeral or know the location of his unmarked grave. They never saw his dead body and would have never known if he had actually died at all. So the story ends there. But there are still several unanswered questions and several possible explanations for the murder of Fanny de Choiselle Prolong. Most evidence points to Teo as the killer. His suspicious behavior, blood-soaked clothes, blood-stained pistol, the selectively locked doors, loosened bedposts, and willful suicide make it a practical guarantee that Teo murdered his wife. Agreed. Which leaves us wondering if Henriette de Luzy was an accomplice in planning the murder. Henriette and Teo had grown quite close during her tenure at the Pralun home, the letter she wrote practically stated that she wanted Fanny out of the picture so Henriette could become the kid's new mother. 
Henriette also defended Teo for quite a long time, even in the face of outstanding evidence that pointed to him as the killer. She was still in Teo's will after she was fired from the home. And after she got paid, she never saw the Prolan children again. So it seems possible that she knew about the murder beforehand. However, she was also genuinely surprised by Teo's suicide. The fact that Teo had arsenic ready the day of the murder implies that suicide was always part of his planned murder. If Henriette was pushing Teo to kill Fanny so that they could be together, Teo would not have planned to kill himself. Additionally, Henriette was beloved by all she met and praised as a virtuous woman for much of her life, even by the men who had investigated her for murder. A woman with that sterling of a reputation probably wasn't a part of a conspiracy to commit murder. Which leaves us with the final possible explanation. Teo never committed suicide at all. Based on the claims of people in the modern day, it seems like a distinct possibility that a living, breathing Teo faked his own death and along with the help of the corrupt court of peers, smuggled himself out of Paris to Nicaragua, where he fathered five more children. The fact that only three people claimed to have seen his dead body, and the fact that nobody, not even his children, was allowed to attend his funeral, make his death incredibly suspicious. Yet suspicion is not proof, and if the Nicaraguan pralons are related to the French pralons, DNA proof has not arisen to close this case. Of all of these possibilities, I think the most likely explanation is that Teo killed his wife, acting alone, then killed himself with arsenic. Henriette seems like too good of a person to push for and plan a murder. And if the Nicaraguan prolons truly are descended from Teo, they'd likely wish to make that public knowledge. I agree. While this case is still technically unsolved, I feel like we have enough evidence to say that Teo was the killer. And any talk of Henriette as an accomplice seems like pure speculation. In the end, this murder had a profound impact on the face of the world today. The injustice and corruption evident in its investigation was one of many cogs in the machine that led to full-blown revolution. And through all the drama, the victim of the murder, Fanny de Choiselle Pralon, was almost forgotten. The story of her murder was a symbolic representation of the class struggle of her countrymen. It was mired in violence, jealousy, tragedy, and corruption. Perhaps more than all else, it was a grim reminder that wealthy and poor alike are subject to the powerful whims of human emotion. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. 
Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Terry Saluki and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, and Steve Pinto. 